I'd invite you to pull out those message notes. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Last week we were in Philippians chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul said, do, do not grumble and do not complain. And, and I said at times I found myself in my life becoming a habitual complainer and a grumbler. And my wife has had to challenge me and said, Ron, you have a problem. And, uh, but today we want to talk about how to maintain our joy. Now I have to tell you this morning that I've got a lot to say and I've got a short time to say it or shorter time than usual. But this is a very, very important message. This is one of those messages that that you need to star, you need to put it someplace, and you need not to forget it. I find that initially, after we become a Christian, there's a lot of joy in our life. We feel the peace of God, and we feel God's love in our lives, and, and everything is great, and everything is wonderful. But over a period of time, I don't know what happens to a number of Christian people. It's as though they spring a leak, and all of the joy, and all the peace, and and, and all the love that they felt initially and that God is working in their life, it kind of just goes out of them for some reason or another. I meet a lot of Christian people who are just mumbling through life, you might want to say, no real joy in their life. And I, I don't know all the reasons why, and I think the Apostle Paul, however, here addresses them, and, and we're going to be talking about it. But, you know, a while back, I read about an organization in Montana and they offered a bounty of $5,000 for every wolf captured alive. $5,000 for every single wolf captured alive. This is a number of years ago. And two hunters named Sam and Jed decided to head for the hills of Montana and make some money capturing wolves. And so day and night, day and night, they scoured the mountains of Montana in the forest, searching for their valuable prey, Exhausted, however, after three days of hunting without any success, they both fell asleep. And during the night, Sam suddenly woke up to find that he and Jed were surrounded by a pack of 50 wolves with flaming red eyes and bare teeth, snarling at the two hunters, preparing to pounce upon them. Sam nudged Jed and said, Hey, wake up! We're going to be rich! <laughs> There's a lot of killjoys in life. Right? There's a lot of killjoys in life. Things that will rob you of your joy. And, and today I want us to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about maintaining your joy, despite the circumstances, whether you're surrounded by wolves or whether you're surrounded by other people or whether or not you're surrounded by uh, your problems. We've been saying all along that often uh, it's not the problems of life, it's how we look at the problems. It's not the circumstances, it's how we view the circumstances that make all the difference in our lives. And did you know that joy 
is a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Philippians. Joy, joy. In fact, the word joy or its derivative is mentioned 17 times in the book of Philippians. And the Apostle Paul keeps returning to this point. I want you to notice chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Look at it with me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice. That's a derivative of joy. Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. I want you to circle, if you like to circle in your message notes, circle that word safeguard. I want to talk about three safeguards for you. Uh, I believe the Apostle Paul talks about in this particular passage of Scripture on how to maintain your joy. Three, three safeguards on how to maintain your joy. The very first one that I see in this particular passage of Scripture is resist legalistic attitudes. Did you know that legalism is a killjoy? It really is. Legalism will suck all the joy of your Christian life. Did you know that legalism can ruin families? Legalism can ruin people. It can even ruin churches. Here is a definition of legalism. Legalism is substituting rules and regulations for a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is substituting rules and regulations for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it comes very subtly to us, often as a believer. It gets the focus off of what God has done for you and rather puts the focus on what you feel like you need to do for God. It's some sort of faith and works type of thing. And it's very, very subtle. It can come, it can come many, many different ways in our life. Now remember what I'm going to say here because I'm going to say a little bit later. But the motive for serving Jesus Christ is not because some preacher tells you what you need to do. It's not because you're following rules and regulations. You do things often and you should do things. The correct motive is out of your love, out of your love for what the Lord has done for you. That's always the motive. And yet somehow in our mixed up world, in our mixed up brains, all of a sudden we begin to realize we need to have a quiet time in a safe place, for example. And we have such a good time, we spend a half hour and we think to ourselves, well, the Lord wants me to spend an hour with him, so we increase it to an hour. And then all of a sudden we get this weird idea, we think to ourselves, well, then we have to do, increase it to two hours, and then we have to increase it to three hours, and we put this some sort of self-imposed legalistic uh, idea upon ourselves and it, after a while we begin to lose our joy when having a still time in a safe place is a good thing to do but but it doesn't in any way increase God's love for us does it not doing these things doesn't earn brownie points with God we do these things for our good out of our love for God. Legalism can become a real killjoy. You know, this has been a problem for thousands of years. In the early New Testament church, uh, legalistic type of individuals were called Judaizers. And these were a group of people who said, yes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. But also, you need to add some other things to your faith. Again, Christ plus 
works. And they basically said, you must keep every single one of the Jewish laws in order to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ plus Sabbath keeping plus circumcision plus all of these dietary laws, etc. And whenever the Apostle Paul heard what the Judaizers were, were trying to do in the, in the church of Philippi, he got furious. He said they were completely wrong. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is attacking these Judaizers who are trying to steal the joy of these early Christian believers. Look at verses 2 through 3. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glorify in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Another translation says, we don't put any trust in the external circumstances. Now, the Apostle Paul called these individuals, these so-called Judaizers, he called them dogs. And when we think of dogs in our current world today, we think of warm, cuddly pets. But in the New Testament time, when you were called a dog, it was a derogatory statement made about you. These were not warm, cuddly pets. In fact, in the New Testament time, often these were scavenger type of dogs that ran in packs that would attack human beings. And so the Apostle Paul says, they're nothing but dogs. They're attacking individuals and people. They're trying to steal individual people's joy, you might want to say. So, so we resist resist legalistic attitudes. And so safeguard number one is this. Remember, live each day by grace. Live each day by grace. Now, the definition of grace is this. God's riches at Christ's expense. And really, when we talk about grace, we're talking about God's unmerited favor that he's been bestowed upon individuals and people. And there's, again, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's grace. There's nothing that we can do. It's a free gift that God has given to us. And so to resist legalistic attitudes, we need to live each day by God's grace. And the Apostle Paul and his life is an example of this. You know, Paul was a super legalist. He was a super legalist of his day before he became a believer because he had tried the rules and he had to try the, try the regulation, regulations way and it did not work. Look at verse 4 with me. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Faultless. How do you know that you're, you're going to go down this pathway of legalism? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us five words, five words in this particular section of Scripture, uh, and, and, and describe what we're talking about here. And each of these begin with the letter R. First of all, you begin to trust in rituals. You begin to trust in rituals. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Now, we don't have circumcision today, but circumcision was a big deal back then. And Orthodox 
uh, Hebrew men were circumcised. And what these individuals were doing, they were coming along and they were saying, in order to be a Christian, you must also be circumcised as a Gentile. And the Apostle Paul said, no way. And he said, uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Now we have our rituals today, don't we? We have baptism, we have communion, we have child dedication, and in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. As long as we don't substitute these things for faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with communion, nothing wrong with baptism, nothing wrong with child dedication. Number two, he says, don't trust in race. Don't trust in race. Notice he says, I was the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was the purest tribe. Paul was named, in fact, after the first king, Saul, who was a, who was a part of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul says he used to trust his heritage. Have you ever heard anyone say, my daddy was a Christian, my mama was a Christian, my, my grandpa was a pastor? That's great and wonderful, but I cannot trust my heritage. You know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And so I get to heaven by having my own personal relationship with God, not by my heritage. So I cannot trust race. Number three, he says, don't trust in religion. Don't trust in religion. Notice he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was a very, very religious person. But Jesus Christ has nothing to do with religion. In fact, he's 100% opposed to it. Now, religion is man's attempt to get to God. Christianity is Christ's attempt to get to man. Christ's attempt to get to man. And that's a relationship. And that's a big difference. And religion says, for example, that there's only one prescribed way for people To worship. Did you know that? Religious people often say there's only one prescribed way for people to worship. There's only these set of songs over here that are Christian, and these songs over here are not Christian. And often there are churches and there are so-called legalistic individuals out there who would tell you that their prescribed way is the only way to worship, and it's a bunch of bunk. Pardon the expression. So we don't trust in rituals, race, or religion. And then Paul says, don't trust in rules. Don't trust in rules. Now, he says, in regard to the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. Did you know the Apostle Paul, uh, before he became the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he kept all the rules. Now, there are two misconceptions that we think of when we think of Pharisees. We often think of Pharisees as hypocrites, but there were very, very some very, very sincere Pharisees who, who really believed that they kept all of the rules. They believed that, and they were very, very sincere. And the second misconception is, is that we think of Pharisees as a large group of people. They were not just a very, very small sect during Jesus' day. And the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. These were the legal eagles. These were the lawyers of their day. They, who had the time, who had the money, who had the ability to study the law and dissect the law. And they took the Ten Commandments and they added 619 other commandments. And they expanded all this. And they were the legalists, as I said. Did you know that a Pharisee 
would not even eat an egg on the Sabbath day when it was laid on the Sabbath day because that was considered work. Did you know a Pharisee would not scratch a mosquito bite on the Sabbath day because that was considered work? Did you know a Pharisee would not allow his spouse, his wife, to look in the mirror on the Sabbath day because if she saw a piece of gray hair and plucked it out, that was considered work? Come on now. Imagine that. Imagine living your life by these self-imposed rules and restrictions, all these dietary laws and, 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 and all of these uh, all of the, the, the Sabbath-keeping laws and, and the circumcision laws and everything else. It doesn't work. And then number five, don't trust in reputation. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, as for zeal, legalistic righteousness. He said, I was faultless. I was faultless. Today, we often have people who feel good about themselves, so much so they want to let other people know about what they're doing and how much they're giving and and what kind of ministries they're involved in. And you feel like that they're bragging, perhaps, out there. That's some sort of legalism, you know, trying to get some sort of browning points before other people or before God. Or these individuals or these people, they they tell you they're so rigid and they're so firm in their legalistic attitudes and their own self-righteousness that they will tell you that, you know, here, here are the orthodox books that you need to read and here are the non-orthodox books you need to hear and here's the kind of music you need to listen to and here's the, here's the kind of music that you do not need to listen to and these are the kind of shows that you need to watch and these are not the kind of shows that you watch and they like to be very, very prescriptive. I have a conscience. I have the Holy Spirit to teach me and guide me. I don't need a preacher and I don't need an organization and I don't need a church to give me clothesline preaching and tell me I need to wear these kind of clothes over here and I need to read these kind of books over here. I don't need that and you don't need it either. And any form of legalism, whether it's uh, rituals or reputation or rules or religion or race, these things can take the joy and sap the joy out of people. I find it offensive. I can't even preach often. I can't even use an author, a Christian author, as a source because people have labeled them as part of the emergent church today. You know what the emergent church is? According to some definitions of the emergent church, if we use the PowerPoint system, if we use alternative translations of the Bible... And if we sing courses, we're part of the emergent church. These labels that people put on one another and these blogs that they put out there and they can say anything they want and no one can challenge these individuals whatsoever. It's wrong. And I want to suggest to you that we need to be people of grace, giving grace to individuals and people and realizing that the Holy Spirit can speak to you as well as He can speak to me. Amen? Amen. So we need to safeguard. The safeguard, number one, is that we need to live our lives by God's grace. By God's grace. Um, We don't do things, again, to impress God because our salvation depends upon them. But rather we do them out of our love for Christ. The motive is love. 
I want us to look at Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Notice, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace. And what does it say right there? And joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says that Christianity, again, is not a matter of rules and rituals and regulations. If the Christian life, listen, if the Christian life were a bunch of do's and don'ts, the only people that would qualify would be those people that are six feet under up here at the Canyon City Cemetery. There's more to the Christian life than a bunch of do's and don'ts. And if we ever get to the place where we think we have it all figured out and we have all of these rules and we have all these regulations, watch out because you're bordering on legalism. Don't let people and organizations and the church to steal your joy. Don't let them do it. Are you saying, Pastor Ron, that we should not have standards and we should not have Christian ethics? I'm not saying that. And if you hear that in my message, you've gotten the message all wrong. I'm not saying that. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the reason why we do the things that we do is out of our love for God, not because of legalism. Number two, let's go on here. We need to reevaluate our activities. We need to reevaluate our activities. Did you know that a lot of people are looking for joy in all the wrong places? And he compares the value of religion to the value of a relationship to Jesus Christ. And he says, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. Did you know that Apostle Paul was a very, very religious person, but he was still lost? In fact, I want you to look at verses 7 through 8. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, we often lose our joy because we're looking for all the wrong things in all the wrong places. Did you know that? We don't have joy sometimes because we're, we're looking for all the wrong things in all the wrong places. And he says, reevaluate your activities. Um, in fact, in that particular section, verses 7 through 8, the word profit is used one time and the word loss is used three times. This is the Apostle Paul's profit and loss statement. He says, all of these things that he at once considered important in his life, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisee, I've got this zealousness, righteousness. He said, all of those things that I considered that was really important in my life, it was rubbish. It was garbage. In fact, the translators here are polite. Because if you really look at it, he's talking about manure. He's talking about dung. So safeguard number two, you have to keep your priorities in perspective. You have to keep your priorities in perspective. You have to know what's important. In other words, what's a profit and what's a loss. Don't lose your joy over things that don't really count. 
Don't lose your joy over other people's opinions of you. The most important person in your corner is God. Is God. And yet, we live for an audience of one, not for other people. Paul is saying, what matters most is not our prestige, not our pedigree, not our possessions, not our position, not our power. You can have all of these things and you can still be very, very unhappy. I want you to look at, look, look at Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Contrary to the mirror life commercial a number of years ago, you cannot have it all. You can't have it all. And Paul points out that life consists of trade-offs. Now, the reason why a lot of people don't have joy in their life is because of misplaced priorities. Now listen, those of you who are considering the claims of Jesus Christ, if we have anybody here this morning, if you're considering the claims of Jesus Christ, there are some trade-offs. Did you know the Bible says there are some things you have to give up? In fact, you have to give up everything. Everything to follow Christ. Everything. Did you know that? You have to give up everything. Otherwise, it's not total commitment to Christ. But when you give up everything, listen to this, you've never had it so good. What I got is worth more than what I gave up. You give up guilt to gain a clear, clear conscience. You give up worry and gain a powerful living. You give up frustration and a lack of purpose in life to gain real meaning and to gain real purpose. You give up going to hell and you get heaven in return. You give up trying to solve all your problems in your own power and you gain the resources of God Almighty to help you and sustain you. And I would say that's a pretty good trade-off, don't you? That's a good trade-off. Jim Elliott, you remember in the late 50s, the missionary with Nate Saint and others that went to Papua New Guinea. They wrote the book and they made the movie at the end of the spear, killed by these stone age tribe people. This is what he wrote years ago, and we still remember him in posterity for the life he lived and what, what he said. This is what he said. Jim Elliot, he is no fool. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. What are we afraid to give up? If we give ourselves completely to God, if we commit ourselves completely to Jesus Christ, what are we afraid that we're going to have to give up and we're going to have to change? Whatever that is, that's the very thing that's robbing us of our joy. The very thing that we don't want to give up is the very thing that's robbing us of our joy. Let's go on here. We need to refocus our ambition. We need to refocus our ambition. 
I, I want you to notice in what he says in verse 10. Look at it with me. He says, um, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to know the fellowship of his sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection uh, from the dead. You know, the Apostle Paul's ultimate goal and his ultimate desire is to get to know Jesus Christ better and better. And how well do we know Jesus? You know, there's a lot of Christians that say, well, I've been a Christian five years, 10 years, maybe 15 years, 20 years, or whatever it may be. But I don't have this kind of knowledge about Jesus that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Because when he talks about knowing Jesus here, he's using uh, a word that means an intimate knowledge. Now, back in the Old Testament, we read that Adam knew his wife Eve. And it's kind of similar to that. In the New Testament, we read that Joseph um, had an intimate knowledge of Mary after Jesus was born. The Amplified Version describes it this way. For my determined purpose is that I may know Christ, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more strongly and more clearly. That's his ultimate goal. Safeguard number three. Get to know Christ better and better. Never stop growing. Never stop developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the moment that you stop growing in your Christian life, the moment you stop experiencing real joy in your life. And how do you get to know Christ in a personal way? Well, first of all, time. It takes time. You know, it takes time to develop a relationship with the person, uh, with Jesus. It takes time to get to know the Lord. You, you spend time with Him. You sit down with your Bible. You read it. You pray. You talk with God about your needs. You listen. Uh, talk. It takes talk. It takes conversation. Uh, prayer. Relationship is a required communication. You listen to, to, to Him. Uh, you read His book, the Bible. John 16, 24. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and your joy. Circle that. Your joy will be complete. Little prayer, little joy. And then you trust. I, I want to close. This this uh, last one about trust. You see, what I've what I've experienced in my Christian life, and what you've experienced in your Christian life, and what a lot of us experience in our Christian life is, is that the Lord will take us through times where we really have to trust in God, have to trust in Him. Isn't that true? Illnesses, diseases, deaths. Work-related, he'll take us through some real, real difficult times in our life. And what we're doing is we're developing trust. He helped us over here. He enabled us. We felt his direction. We felt his peace. And now in this present situation, I have history with God and my trust muscle and my faith muscle is built up because God walked with me, and I know if he walked with me back here, he's going to walk with me in the future over here. 
I read about this a number of years ago. There, there was a family that was awakened by a smoke detector in the middle of the night to discover that their house was on fire. The father ran into the upstairs bedroom of his children and, and he carried his 18-month-old baby boy in his arms while he was dragging his four, four-year-old son by the hand. You can picture it, those of us who have kids or those of us who have children. They were halfway down the stairs when the little four-year-old boy remembered his teddy bear back in his room. So he broke away from his dad. And in the confusion, the father thought that the four-year-old was following him out the front door, only to discover that the four-year-old was now trapped in the second-story bedroom And he was yelling out the window, Daddy, Daddy, help me. Worst case scenario that any parent could be in, especially dad, right? And his, his, his dad, his father yelled down from below, Jump out the window, Andy. I'll catch you. Jump out the window, Andy, and, and I'll catch you. I'm right here. And in the darkness and in the smoke, the little boy yelled back, But Daddy, I cannot see you. And the daddy on that particular early morning at 4 o'clock in the morning shouted back, that's okay, Andy, because I can see you. Jump. Please jump. And Andy jumped. He jumped. God can be trusted. What is it that you're trusting the Lord for? What is it? Church, what are you trusting God for? He can be trusted, and you know He can be trusted because He walked with you through the death of your child, and He walked with you through, the, through that illness that you've had. God can be trusted. What, do we gotta, what are we trusting God for? He can be trusted. I'm reminded of the chorus that you used to sing years ago. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds tomorrow. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, but I know that God can be trusted. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together?